Hello there, and welcome once again to Insight Peterborough. I'm Devin Wilkins. Insight Peterborough is a project of the Peterborough chapter of the Canadian Council of the Blind, otherwise known as the CCB. And if you'd like to get more information about the CCB, uh, you can send an email to ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. That's ccbpeterborough at gmail.com. Well, we've got a busy show today, so I'm going to keep my comments to a minimum. February is Heart and Stroke Month. I really was hoping to get an interview with the hospital or someone uh, there about uh, why you shouldn't ignore potentially emergency situations uh, because of uh, COVID or, or whatever other reason you might have, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it. So we're going to dig back into the archives again uh, to a chat with Norm Emerald, and uh, he talks to us about sleep apnea and how that can affect the heart and many other parts of the body. So here is that chat. Well, as we all know, February is Heart Month, and more of us are getting to know that something called sleep apnea is a major cause of heart disease and various other things. So I thought it would be a good idea to come to Vital Air here in the Alexander Building and chat with somebody who knows all sorts of things about sleep apnea. And uh, he is Norm Amaro, who is a respiratory therapist. Hi, Norm, and welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So what is sleep apnea? Well, <laughs> sleep apnea, apnea is simply the word meaning um, lack of breath or stopping breathing. So it's you stop breathing in your sleep. And it's caused by the muscles relaxing too much in your throat. And um, basically it, it causes the, uh, the airway to block and stops your breathing. Um, there are reported cases back almost 5,000 years. Wow. Uh, there are some hieroglyphic papyrus uh, stuff written describing in exact detail what uh, somebody going through sleep apnea. So um, it's been around for a long, long time. Uh, it's only been treatable for the past 30, 32 years or so. Mm-hmm. So how did they discover how to treat sleep apnea? Um, that's a really good question because uh, it used to be done in the hospital only. Mm-hmm. And uh, when somebody came up with uh, the idea that we could do it at home, uh, there was a big fight um, between the uh, anesthetists and the rest of the world. <laughs> they sort of said, we shouldn't be doing this at home. It's a very critical thing. And uh, then somebody figured out that it really, you know, it was going to be a lot easier to get these people out of intensive care and into their own homes on a CPAP machine. Right. Uh, 
Um, so how do, how do they determine that you, in fact, have sleep apnea? Um, sometimes it's your significant other that uh, basically wants to kick you out of the bed. <laughs> um, but uh, they, they do send people to sleep labs, and um, it's uh, a reasonably involved procedure where they hook you up with uh, just a whole whack of wires on your head, and they're measuring electroencephalograms, so EEG, and they hook up some wires on your chest to measure your heart, so that's an EKG. And then they measure, they put wires on your arms and your legs to measure limb movement. And they put something at the tip of your nose to measure your breathing and a couple of bands around. And uh, the joke around here is that they really should call it a sleepless lab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so they can determine how, uh, how many times you wake up in the night? Yeah. So nor normally the procedure is they have you uh, go to the sleep lab once and they wire you up and watch you sleep and they determine whether or not you in fact have sleep apnea. So they can tell you know, whether you stopped five times an hour or 150 times an hour. Yeah. Um, the record that I've seen so far is 179 times an hour. Wow. So the person uh, was breathing roughly three times a minute. That's, yeah. My goodness. Um, and then they normally br will bring you back to the sleep lab a second night and uh, wire you up again, and then they put a device on you to figure out whether or not this is going to help stop the sleep apnea. So we talked uh, a couple of minutes ago in my introduction about sleep apnea affecting the heart. How does that happen? Um, now, I'm going to give you a long explanation here. Okay. <laughs> um, let's start with balloons. So if I give you a balloon and I take a pair of scissors, so this is just an empty balloon, no air in it. Okay. If I gave you a uh, pair of scissors and we snip the closed end off, you basically have a floppy tube. If you try to suck through that tube, the tube is going to collapse. The harder you, to suck, you, harder you try to suck air through that tube, the tighter it's going to collapse. So your airway is divided into two major parts. The part below your voice box, or your Adam's apple, that's your trachea. That goes down into the lungs. And that's a really good, hard, rigid tube. The tube above your Adam's apple, or your voice box, that is basically a floppy tube. It's like the balloon. And, but unlike the balloon, you have a neck. And in that neck, you have muscles. And those muscles are attached to the outside of your tube and they pull outwards. So they basically leave a hole in the middle. And that's what you normally breathe through. So as long as, your mus as, long as you have enough muscle tone um, in your neck muscles, it's holding the airway open and there's no big deal. So when most people, even with people with sleep apnea, when they're awake, they're not snoring or anything. They just are breathing. As they fall asleep, your muscles relax. So if you've ever watched somebody fall asleep on an easy boy or something, um, you see them sort of tilt over to the side and they start to get a little floppy and then <laughs> sound. So basically as the airways, as your muscles relax, as you're falling asleep, the muscles holding your airway open, they're relaxing as well. And that tube starts to go from a nice, patent, open tube 
to one that's starting to get a little bit floppy. So it's starting to approach what a, what a, what the balloon is. Mm-hmm. It's a floppy tube, and they start to snore. A lot, not everybody, but most people with sleep apnea will snore. Then they get from light sleep into dark sleep, deep sleep. I keep on talking about dark sleep. <laughs> um, they go from light sleep into deep sleep. And when you transition into deep sleep, there is a huge muscle relaxation. So your muscles relax a lot. And the muscles holding your airway open, now they're just basically not strong enough to hold it open. So basically you've got a balloon there. When you go to take a breath in, the airway literally collapses. It literally just snaps shut. Yeah. So now your brain says, oh, this isn't good. Yeah. <laughs> so it sends a signal down to the breathing muscles, so your diaphragm and your chest muscles, and it says, breathe harder. Well, the harder you try to suck through a floppy balloon, the tighter the balloon goes. Mm-hmm. So the tar- harder you try to take a breath through this floppy tube, the, har- the, cl- the tighter the tube collapses. So now all of a sudden you're using a lot of muscles in your chest. You've stopped, we've cut off your air supply while you're exercising. So your oxygen level is going to go down, right? and your brain is going to say, mm, this is not helping, um, making things worse, actually. So now all of a sudden, your oxygen level is dropping, your muscles are working harder, and your brain says, oh, look at that, you're exercising, because your muscles are, are working. So if you were on a treadmill, walking, you know, I get you running on the treadmill, um, your heart rate's going to go up. Yeah. And... The reason the heart rate goes up is to move more blood, because blood is what carries the oxygen. So blood is oxygen is, is in the in the blood cells, uh, in the in the blood, and if you want to move more oxygen, you have to move more blood. So you speed up the heart. Wonderful idea when you're breathing. Yes. <laughs> Stupid idea when you're not breathing. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got a a, a big muscle. Uh, the heart is a big muscle. It's basically burning lots of oxygen. It's somewhat important to your life, <laughs> and now you're getting it to work overtime while you starve it. Right. So the brain says, okay, enough of this. You have to figure out maybe somebody's holding a pillow over your head, and you've got to wake up and fight it off. So we lose muscle tone as we fall asleep. We get muscle tone back the closer we get to becoming awake. So as you're waking up, before you hit the, hey, I'm awake stage, you're at the, hey, I'm almost awake stage, but I'm still asleep and I have no idea any of this is happening. Yeah. And you get enough muscle tone to go, and you take a nice deep breath in. Yeah. And now your brain sees all this fresh air come in and it says, hey, you don't have to wake up any more than this. <laughs> go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, this happens over and over and over again. So mild sleep apnea is five to 15 times an hour of stopping breathing. Moderate is around 30. Uh, Severe is basically over 40, over 30, over 40. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've had up to my record in this that I've seen is 179 times an hour. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that would have major effects on your heart. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So people... who have sleep apnea, if you compare them to people who don't have sleep apnea, the group with sleep apnea has a significantly higher risk of heart disease and heart attacks, um, a very high risk of um, high blood pressure, a significant increased risk of um, stroke, 
there are some memory issues involved. Uh, a lot of people with sleep apnea have really, really lousy memories. Um, there's a mild increased risk of congestive heart failure. There's a massive increased risk of type 2 diabetes and a inability to lose weight. So not everybody gets all of them or any of them, but uh, people with sleep apnea are at a significantly higher risk of getting something. Um, the most common ones are high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and being overweight. Okay. What's the method now of treating sleep apnea? The, the gold standard is CPAP, and that stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And basically it's just an air pump, and we're going to put a mask over the person's face, and it's literally going to inflate the floppy parts and hold them open. <laughs> So again, uh, it's it's tech. If you ask an engineer, give me the engineering definition of what sleep apnea or what CPAP is. It's technically known as a pneumatic splint. And if you think of a car tire, that's a perfect example of a pneumatic splint. Basically, you put air pressure into the tube. It pushes up against the walls, keeps the rims off the road. Everybody's happy. We're going to put a mask over the face, and it's going to inflate the back of the throat. So when you relax enough to the point where your airway would normally be collapsing, when you have the CPAP on, it basically the air pressure holds it open, just like the car tire, so it doesn't collapse, which means you can now get into the deep sleep, and deep sleep is where all the good stuff happens. Right. I have a brother-in-law with ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and he has what they call a BiPAP. What's the difference between a CPAP and a BiPAP? Okay, CPAP is one continuous pressure. So if, if the doctor says, I want uh, you to set the pressure for this person to 10, basically when the machine goes on, at some point in time during the night, it's going to reach 10 and it's going to stay there. One pressure when they breathe in and when they breathe out. BiPAP is two different pressures and they have a higher pressure when you breathe in and a lower pressure when you breathe out and it usually is to do with people with more severe issues than just sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So uh, if the person can trigger the machine to cycle on the higher pressure will actually blow more air in and actually help that person get a larger volume of air without having to do the work. When, the, when they cycle the machine off, the pressure drops, so it's much, much easier for that air to come back out again. Okay. So people with neuromuscular problems or what's called uh, chronic uh, nocturnal hypoventilation, um, they basically, their breathing becomes so shallow that they build up carbon dioxide. Oh. And what happens is when they trigger the machine, even though they're only using a little bit of effort, they get a bigger breath. Mm -hmm. which blows out that carbon dioxide, and it's a, it's a very simple treatment uh, for, for a, a rather severe disease. Yeah, yeah. So um, have, has the size of the CPAP machine uh, decreased over the years? Yeah, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, if we looked at the first ones, um, they're about the size of four loaves of bread. If you took two loaves of bread and put them side by side and then stack two more on top of them, that's about the size of one of the earlier machines. 
and now the machines are about the size of one loaf of bread. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. That easier for traveling. Yes. <laughs> and uh, what about the uh, price? What are we looking at? Um, in Ontario, uh, and Ontario is one of the few provinces that actually has a, a government program that will help subsidize the, the, fund, the, the, the cost of the machines. Mm -hmm. um, if you qualify, basically, so you have to go to the sleep lab and they have to say, yes, you have sleep apnea, and yes, sleep ap a CPAP will actually deal with it. So that the government doesn't pay for things that, that don't work. Um, the, they will uh, offset 75% of the cost of the machine. Okay. So the machine is $860 in Ontario, and they will pay $645. So the remaining portion is $215. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not include filters and extra tubing and masks and stuff like that. Uh, so we can... From scratch, I can I can keep you down to in the vicinity of around five hundred dollars, depending on what parts and pieces you want. I can get you up to over eight hundred fairly quickly. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, <laughs> if you want a whole bunch of extra stuff, but uh, if somebody came in and said, you know, I, I I need you to keep my cost down, we can we can keep it down. Um, if somebody comes in here and says, um, I want everything, then yeah. We, we can do that, too. Sure. <laughs> and uh, you do sell them here at, uh, at Vital Air. We do. Uh -huh. yes. You don't have to order them out or anything like that. No. Um, no. There is a process. I mean, yeah. basically, we need a prescription, and we yeah. need the government form signed uh, before we, we can sell you through the government program. Um, one additional thing, though, is if you are on a government, uh, like an Ontario uh, social assistance like ODSP mm -hmm. or Ontario Works, um, the fact that you're on that program authorizes the government to cover more. Ah. So uh, if you're on ODSP, we can get pretty well 100% of everything covered. Okay. Um, and on Ontario Works, it's almost 100%. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very close. Okay. Now, quite often with... Um uh, stuff that you can get through the assistive devices program. Uh, you can renew every five years. Does that work with CPAPs? Yes and no. Um, the The government program will come available every five years, mm -hmm. but the Ministry of Health says that there's got to be something wrong with the equipment. Okay. So if you have a perfectly functioning equipment uh, machine, um, their intent is not to buy you a second machine so uh, we normally have to have a look at it and see if there's anything wrong with it um, which usually is done here but we may have to send it out but um, basically and the other thing is you you need to have been seen in the sleep lab recently so um, we have a number of people who will come in after 10 years and they've never seen a sleep doctor since the first time and they want to get another machine because their machine is making some god-awful noises, then <laughs> um, we explain that you have to be seen by the sleep doctor, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people don't want to go back to the sleep lab. They uh -huh. have a bad experience. And uh, I will say most sleep labs are much nicer to go to now than they were 10 years ago. Yes. So, um, But nobody's going to sign a prescription um, based on something that happened 10 years ago. Right. You, know, like you wouldn't go to surgery and have the doctor say, oh, we've got some 10-year-old uh, x-rays, 
that should be good enough to figure out what we're going to do today. Um, they need they need to be seen, you know, something that's that's recent. Yes. How often do you suggest that people with CPAP machines should come in for uh, a look at the CPAP and any maintenance or whatever? Um, if they're running fine without any issues. Um, us having a look at it, I, I would say no more than once a year. Okay. Um, and just having a peek and making sure the pressure is at the right pressure. Um, masks, even though everybody keeps their mask way longer than they should, we tell people um, you should be replacing masks about once a year. Okay. Um, and I'm going to give you some hints on how to save money now. Yes, okay. Okay. Um, wash your mask every day. Uh, that is a huge deal. It's the oil from your skin that gets into the material and it breaks it down and they don't seal very well anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people who come in and say, oh, I wash my, ma I wash my mask religiously once a month, um, their mask doesn't seal well. So we tell people, get the oils off in the morning. We tell people, use a little bit of dish soap because uh, that will break down the, the oils and get them off. And... Um, just get it, get the oil off every morning, and uh, if you do that, the mask will last much, much, much longer. Okay. And does the CPAP have filters? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, every CPAP has a filter in there, or two, one or two filters. Yep. Um, that is a huge deal in keeping them uh, from getting uh, dirt in the bearings, and uh, the most common fault that we see when somebody comes in with a machine that's making some god-awful noises, uh, it's the bearings. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it sounds sort of like a squeal, and uh, if you clean the filters and change the filters on a regular basis, um, that basically stops the, the dirt and the pollen and stuff from getting into the bearings and uh, keeps them longer. So I, we have, I have a gentleman who has a 20-year-old machine. Wow. And um, he is religious about filters, and the machine is actually working really, really well. Wow. Um, that's rare. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's very, very picky about cleaning his masks, and he has, you know, two-year-old masks that still look like they're, you know, a month old. Wow. And he has, he changes his filter very religiously every month. And it, it shows, like the machine just simply lasts longer. Terrific. So if anyone uh, is uh, wanting to ask uh, questions or bring their CPAP machine in, you're here in the Alexander Building. Yes. Right? Sweet. Uh, 101. 101. Thank you very much, Norm, for doing this with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I recently did an interview with a fellow from Arizona named Michael Goring, and he is with Guiding Eyes for the Blind, which is headquartered uh, near New York City. And the reason I did it was for another show entirely that I do called Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. What he had to say about traveling with your dog and winter safety was is very valuable and it doesn't matter whether you have a 
a guide or a servant's dog or a pet dog. And so I thought I'd play it here. Have a listen. Well, hi, Mike, and thanks so much for being on the program with us. Uh, first of all, let's uh, start with the dog, uh, shall we? D- do you like the boots that they have now for dogs? Uh, yeah, they've got several good options out there. Um, currently, Guiding Eyes is issuing, uh, we go with the rough wear boots. Um, we've been using that product for years. We have a good uh, work professional relationship with rough wear and uh, um, they work fairly well. Um, I will say so on the downside of those, they're not, um, they don't offer a terrible amount of protection from the cold. Um, and when you, when you talk about the extreme uh, cold temperatures um, as you get up in Winnipeg and Edmonton and, and some of those extreme locations, um, the bottoms of those shoes, the Ruffwear shoe, is a, it's a Vibram brand sole on a shoe similar to what you're finding on a Merrill shoe for people, and um, that does get that can get quite rigid and inflexible during winter travel. Uh, in those, you know, we start talking those minus, you know, minus 30s and 40s, where the Celsius and Fahrenheit scale start to meet. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, we, there is another make of boot for cold protection that's actually a Canadian product, um, the Muttluck, M-U-T-T-L-U-K-S, the Muttluck boot. Um, and that is, that's a, actually developed um, for a little better protection uh, from the cold. Um, fits more like a, more like a stocking. Uh-huh. Uh, perhaps than uh, than the velcro strap on the boot. Um, they can be a little bit challenging to get on, um, but with some tricks of the trade, we I use the tennis balls to stretch them out a little bit so they go on a little bit easier. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and the bottoms of those are are just a suede uh, kind of a suede leather bottom on them. Um, so they actually, when they get get cold and they get a little tacky. Um, on the bottom, so those can be a fairly good solution. Um, personally, I've never been a real big fan of the, you know, the balloon-style boots. Um, however, for some dogs, that's as much as they'll tolerate. Um, I mean, the, the the problem with those is that they just they seem to get punctured quite. You know, I've seen some of them get punctured. The dog's nails poke through and they get ripped up. But, I've witnessed some people are thinking their dog's paws protected, and here the dog's walking around with, you know, almost like a uh, rubber ring hanging off their foot, flopping there in the wind. So, um, but I mean, those can be helpful. Um, Yeah, as well. So, um, and there's a few other brands out there people have had luck with too. I mean, it's all what uh, you know, what schools prefer and. and, and what they're advocating is, um, I always defer, of course, every every graduate should refer to their own school on what their own school is recommending. Mm-hmm. What do you think of uh, a brand of, uh, of protection called Musher's Secret? Uh, my, Musher's Secret is a nice alternative uh, to boots, uh, particularly for those dogs that are are not tolerant of wearing boots. 
Um, Usher's Secret can be a nice, uh, you know, that can help out, um, be a nice alternative. The, uh, you know, it does keep, you know, part of what we want to do when we're talking about boots with the dogs is, um, without, you know, the, the, the extreme cold temperatures are a hazard to the dog's feet, but um, more so what we get more concerned about is protecting the dogs from um, the, the moisture and the yuck. Uh-huh. The, you know, on, on you know, any of the northern tier travelers uh, that hear this know, you know, there's, there's you know, the, the chemical that they put down to keep the roads sod and keep, you know, keep it safe for drivers out there. Um, while safe, making it safer for drivers, it's not making it safer for our guide dogs. So um, that you know, we those chemicals have just a you know, conglomeration of different chemicals that are used, including salts, of course. And the dogs, when they get to their final destination, the dog often looks to see. So um, the muster secret, it does create a um, water-resistant barrier, um, and it does help. Um, it does help to keep. Moisture from penetrating, you know, it, it helps to, uh, you know, particularly when with those using Labradors, that you know, you already have a dog that has a, a water-resistant coat with, um, you know, a breed that was uh, developed for jumping into cold water in the first place. So um, that can help, uh, you know, particularly at moderately cold temperatures, as well as just um, it's better than certainly better than nothing. Uh, for those situations where uh, people are facing a real extreme temperatures. Do you find that dogs <laughs> like um, things on or stuff on their feet? Uh, that it varies. I mean, dogs. The idea of you know, for for most of us, we don't remember the first time we ever put you know socks and shoes on our feet. No. Um, for for dogs, um, you know, the part dogs pick up information through their feet, their paws, uh, the pads on their feet provide them with sensory information, sensory feedback. So, part of the resistance that you notice when we put boots on our dog's feet is that it's just it's just a very odd thing uh, for a dog. Uh, to have something on their feet like that, and it does interfere. It makes the world feel different mm-hmm. um, to the to the dog. So for some dogs, it's you know it develops. It depends a little bit on the personality of each individual dog. Um, some dogs are you know 100% fine. You put the boots on, and they'll walk a little funny for a while, and then they get over it, and they're like, okay, you want to they're just very malleable and they, they go right with it. Um, and then you have the other end of the spectrum where some of them just become very, very concerned that they can't, they're not sensing the world the same way they did before. So it's just very discerning. And, and it's just a personality uh, with, the dog, with each dog. Some dogs are okay getting their nails trimmed and some dogs don't like their feet being messed with at all. Um, and then you have those that are kind of in the middle, which I'd probably put most of most of our guide dogs is that they'll, you know, given some time, uh, they'll acclimate. Uh, they'll acclimate to wearing the boots, given some some time to do so. Um, they don't necessarily love them, but they'll they'll tolerate it and they'll do their job in them. 
Is there a secret to getting to them to at least like them? Uh, one of the things that works really well is is doing um, two boots two boots at a time. Um, that's I've been advocating that for decades, and that does seem to to do well with dogs. I would say um, number one, do you know, do this outside of when you, you know, don't wait until December to pull the boots out. Uh-huh. Um, a good time, you know, pull those boots out in September when it's still nice out, and and you you know it's not, you don't feel rushed and you don't feel pressured, um, but pull the boots out and you just very simply just in the house, no harness, um, just in the house. You put the front two boots on and let your dog you know play with a favorite toy, do some obedience, do a favorite game. Um, just let them get used to being being himself and experiencing his world with just those two boots on. So that way he still has um, his back feet, for instance, are on, you know, without boots and the front boots, two feet with boots. And that way he can be, still have some comfort. Um, and, they, and and just short, five, seven minutes, um, have some fun with it, take them off. Um, when you're putting the boots on and taking them off, you always, you know, always use for those that are using treats, uh, you know, the boots going on and the boots being on deserves uh, high-value treats and food reward and high praise. When you take them off, no big deal. Be very neutral about the dog's boots coming off. Um, we want to make sure we're not, you know, we're not celebrating the boots coming off. That's that, you know, the dog has been, especially if you have a dog that has an aversion to the boots, you're only... Um, you know, reaffirming his belief that the boots off is, is, is wonderful and a good thing. So mm-hmm. um, praising and rewarding when they're going on and when they are on. Um, and then alternating that, just mixing that up. One day put on the front, the next day put on the back. So it's a few minutes a day, not a big deal. Um, you yourself keeping your own energy level very kind of neutral and having some fun with it. Just make it a game. It doesn't have to be anything dreadful. And then once you feel, you know, once you feel the dog's making some, some headway and getting more comfortable with them, then you can start doing all four. Um, and again, let them. He can play. He can do obedience. He can. You can just heal him around the house. You can whatever you want to do. Just have some fun with it. Get him used to it. And all this. Notice you're doing all of this without the harness on. So you're just allowing your dog to get used to the idea of having these boots on his feet. Um, you know, the, the, the converse of that, and, and when things go up and go badly, is when you, you wait for that December day where, okay, it's the first bitterly cold day of the year, we need to put your boot on, and suddenly you're pulling out the boots, you're putting all four of them on, you're putting on the harness, and now you're telling your dog, who doesn't really like having things on his feet, now you have to not only have these on your feet and tolerate that, but you have to guide me while doing this. So, it's, you know, simplify it for your dog. Um, Set them up for success. Give them a chance to acclimate to those boots ahead of time and wearing them, and then it's not. But once we get you to do that, you know, for months and just, and it doesn't have to be every day. If you start well ahead of time, you can just mix it up every once in a while. Just get it used to it. We're going to play the booty game today. <laughs> right. Another something you do with your dog. You just keep it light, you keep it fun, and you don't have a lot of anxiety around it. And then by the time you do need to pull out those boots and actually ask your dog to do it, he's ready to do it. You know, and you and you work yourself up to that point where you're actually having him 
jackets for dogs. Uh, do you like them? Do you have a favorite brand? Um, there again, we're using, yeah, I mean, for, for those extreme uh, climates uh, within the Guiding Eyes program, we are fine with it. We ask graduates to check in with, you know, check in with us uh, ahead of time. Um, and let us kind of coach and advise on that. We want to be the concern there is we want to make sure that the, the piece of equipment, the, the jacket that you would purchase, um, does not interfere with your harness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's of course the big, you know, that's the biggest concern there. And then too, we want to make sure it's not, it's not too warm, um, and it's not, because you, you can overdo it on that front. You can, you know, a lot of, Dogs, you know, our, our dogs are wearing coats 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they have some protection already. Um, different dogs have different tolerance to cold, and that's just an individual thing with dogs. And you know, we all know there's dogs out there. Everybody listening to this will, you know, have some dogs that when they, they see the snow, they can't wait to go out in it and play it and roll in it. concerned. Um, is there a danger of those getting frostbitten while a dog is out? Yes, that, that actually is a 
their tips can can freeze, um, and that can be a dangerous bit. Your tail tips as well, but it's more common with the ear tips. Um, you want to, if you're particularly, so, so when the dog, when your dog is moving and guiding, um, you've got good, you know, you've got good, uh, you've got good blood flow going, and that generally, you know, the, the, the dog's heart's pumping and sending out warmed blood throughout the body um, and through the extremities. It's uh, particularly dangerous when the dog's at a standstill. Uh, when you're standing at the bus stop or you're waiting for your ride share um, and you're standing on that wind, those you know, brutally cold temperatures or uh, wind is blowing in on the dog's ears, those ear tips can get cold. Um, they can get frostbit um, to the point where the dog can lose the tips of their ears. Oh. Same situation. So, um, yeah, something you can do there if you're, if you're out there on one of those days and you end up waiting for the bus and you're five minutes late. And uh, where is he? Um, it's a good idea to uh, just just take your dog's ear between your mittens uh, and uh, and just hold him in there and just warm. You, know, you can just kind of hold holding that that ear in between your uh, hands. You can just warm him that way and just give him a little bit of a rub um, to try and keep the keep the ears warm and warm them up. Um, of course, you know it's better if you can if you can get inside. Uh, you know if they have a, a you know an enclosed bus shelter or you can be inside and some of them have heaters and whatnot but um, you know part of our challenge today is in, in these days of COVID um, we're not always wanting to get real you know as close to people as we once did of course mm-hmm. so, uh, so you know sometimes we might be in a situation where that shelter is full and, and we have no choice to stand outside in order to, uh, to stay socially distanced so um, yeah so you can keep the, you can help your dog out by keeping Okay. I, I, I generally don't, you know, we generally don't recommend covering the dog's ears with anything uh, that can, you know, any of those products that are out there. Um, you know, of course, they can obstruct the dog's ability, your dog's ability to hear, which he uses his hearing as well as his vision for his job of guiding you. And, uh, and then, too, if those, you know, any of those things come loose or they come off and stuff, they cannot be obstructing your your dog's vision as well. So um, generally, we try to stay you know stay generally stay away from any products like that, but just being mindful. And and just as a general rule, you know, on those on those really bitter cold, you know, those extreme days when it's bitterly cold, you want to um, depending on your health, your dog's health and age. Um, you know, consider consider whether or not you should be out there. Of course, you know, that, that's you know, if you have to be, you have to be. But you want to make, make good decisions. That's kind of first and foremost on whether it's you know, is it necessary uh, for me to be out there uh, with my dog on this particular day, and might there be another option? Right. You know, I, I've known people through the years that you know, on, on you know, bitterly.
to think these things through, make good, make good, smart decisions. You know, we, you know, guide dog handlers. We all know, you know, they, you have guide dogs before because you prefer guide dog travel to white cane travel. But um, there may be circumstances where dusting off the white cane, um, giving your dog a break, may be the safest thing for the guide dog. Right. I guess it's a good idea to practice mobility skills with your cane every once in a while anyway, isn't it? I'm a huge advocate of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, you, you can be, you know, the, the best hand, you know, the, the, when you give that forward command, the, the best you can do for your dog is, is follow your dog well. Um, we... Beyond that, we we always talk of guide dog travel as a team effort. The dog is guiding, and you are doing a good job following that dog's lead. Um, there's times, however, your dog gets in a jam, and and particularly, you know, more frequently with a young new guide dog. But um, you know, a dog will get in a pickle, and and as a team member, as part of that team, uh, when you have a collapsible white cane in your backpack or your purse or on your holster, um, you're a stronger team member at that point because you have another tool in your toolbox that you can bring to, you can bring to the, the challenge and you can say, you know, uh, you know, look down your dog and say, okay, let me, let me put the handle down here and see what I can figure out. Um, so having good, you know, having having good cane skills and keeping those cane skills sharp is, is a benefit to you as a, as a guide dog traveler in that way, is that you can not all, you know, the burden doesn't fall all on your dog each and every time you run into a challenge. When you have that cane there, you have a plan B. And I've, I've noted through the years that one of the things that, for those that, that are, uh, do keep their cane skills up and do keep their cane, a cane on them at all times, um, it takes some stress and pressure off the team. It's kind of like, like you, you know as you're traveling down the street and you hear yourself approaching some construction, let's say, and suddenly you're like, I didn't know there was construction going on on the sidewalk, and the next thing you know, your dog's brought you up to a barricade that's blocking a sidewalk that's usually not blocked. And, you know, for the traveler that doesn't have a white cane on them, that can be a very panicky, I mean, it causes all of us a what-the-heck-now situation. But if you're having that white cane on you, at least you have something to fall back on if your dog gets really flustered by that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, by not having that cane on you, you come into it, and all the pressure, all that work pressure, all the... All of that goes on your dog. All of it's all up to the dog to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And particularly in a situation of a young guide dog, you know. So, so when you have that situation where somebody comes and doesn't have their cane, and they walk into this, you know, come up to this barrier, and and the panic sets, and it's like, okay, you got to get me. You know, you're looking down at your dog and saying, you've got to get us out of this. And the dog's looking back up and say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this particular situation. Mm-hmm. And so you then you end up with, with kind of an anxiety, cyclical anxiety, where the dog's feeding.
this comes up too, because there's times we come in, into situations in the winter with, you know, when the snowplow has gone by and they berm up, you know, put a nice berm of, uh, you know, snowy, soupy, sloppy, icy yes. on the down curbs, you know, and the dog is, you know, you, you come into your down curb and, and you tell your dog forward and suddenly your dog isn't pulling forward like he normally does. And he's pulling you slightly off to your left. And it's like, well, why are you doing that today? And that doesn't feel right to me. Um, you know, you can, your cane is longer than your arm. You can pull that cane out and have your dog, you know, and, and build your confidence, confirm, oh, there's a big berm of snow there. Um, so there, there are things that can be, or you can help your dog spot, um, plan and getting through some of that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's just, yeah, I, I'm a huge proponent on keep those great cane skills up, even if you, you know, even if you don't, prefer cane travel. Um, some people will go as far as saying they absolutely dislike cane travel, but you know what? It's another tool in the toolbox. Um, so it's just uh, handy to keep around. It's not, not to say anything that you're ever going to uh, trade your guide dog in for cane travel, but um, it's just a good idea to keep those skills up. Now, what do you suggest in the event that you happen to fall? Um, is it a good idea uh, to use your dog to help you get back on your feet again? Would it hurt the dog? Uh, um, you, yeah, you want to be really careful with that. And the reasoning behind that is that the if you've taken a fall, and it depends on the severity of the fall to some extent, um, but certainly in the six, you know, in the circumstance where you've taken a very quick and hard fall, um, and if you're not sure what the dog's experience was in that fall, did you fall on the dog? Did the dog fall as well? Um, you know, to use your dog as a brace to try to stand up, um, you could further injure your dog. Uh, you don't know what what your dog suffered in that fall. And you also have to keep in mind in these things that dogs have a much higher pain threshold than do most, most people. And our working dogs, a lot of times, they, you know, they just don't want to, sh- they don't show pain. Um, so uh, we want to be really careful with that. Um, it's preferable there to there again, you know, by having your cane um, handy, that can, that can be a tool to help you get back up. Um, that or keeping a collapse, collapsible hiking pole uh, handy can also be a benefit to us uh, when we're traveling in those in winter conditions and that sort of thing and coming on the ice. Um, but generally, I would advocate away from uh, using our dog as a support to stand up. Um, now, if you you know if you know if it was a fairly you know, it's one of those slow motion fall, and you realize that you know, your dog, you know, you're, you're certain that your dog wasn't injured. Um, there again, it's something different. There, it depends though on your, you know, in some cases, your size versus your dog's size. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, we have some of these little pocket labs out there that, um, you know, if we have you know a large a large adult man. Um, that's my size, you know, six, you know, six foot, two hundred 
Interesting. Uh, I suppose if you want to be proactive as well, it might be handy to take a, a cell phone along with you in case you injure yourself or you really do need help getting up. Absolutely, yeah. For winter, if you're going out there in winter travel, you want to be just as, you know, any, anybody that would, would be driving, we have our winter survival kit with us. Um, same should be true of, of a winter traveler by guide dog. Um, you know, have things with you that, uh, you know, and that, that can include, um, you know, yak tracks, things for the bottom, bottoms of your shoes to help you with, uh, uh, with, uh, traveling on icy surfaces and with traction. Um, you know, we do allow for the, the use of those as well, but we advocate if you are going to have something on the bottom of your shoes, you should should boot, put boots on your dog to protect your dog's feet just in case you step on your dog's foot with yes. these back trucks. is something that can be added protection as well. But certainly having, yes, a cell phone um, is absolutely a, a you know, good part of your survival kit uh, and charge, you know, making sure that it's charged up before you head out. Um, that you're able to to some, you know, like get get, uh, get help if you need it, and and it's not a you know it's not to be over the top about it, but you know if you're going out in really treacherous weather and you've got stretches that you're traveling where you know you're not going to encounter a lot of people, um, you know not a bad idea to let somebody know on each end that you know I'm leaving the house now and I should be at this. You know, I should be at the other end by this time, and if you're not, people know to you know, something, you know, something's up. So, um, just good common sense. I mean, those those winter, you know, we we joke about you know the winter weather and, and the inconvenience of it, but it, it can be downright dangerous. I mean, it does. You know, people, uh, unfortunately, every year people people lose their lives to hypothermia and extreme situations. So, not guide dog cameras uh, per se, but, um, but but cold can kill. So, you know, we don't want to be aware of that and make, make smart decisions out there. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other winter safety tips that you might like to pass along? Uh, all right, boy, I think we did a pretty good job there covering, okay. uh, covering most of it. It's, uh, you know, good just good sense not taking, you know, to me it's just not, not taking risks when we don't have to. Uh, when we're in those extreme climate, you know, in extreme um, cold situations, I mean, you know, we, we may want to weigh, you know, do we really need to make that run up to the convenience store to pick up a soda? <laughs> you know, those types of things. And, and uh, you know, we finding, you know, everybody wants to keep, you know, keep active themselves and keep our guide dogs active. But in, in those extreme temperatures, sometimes it's better to just, uh, you know, maybe a door, door-to-door trip out to, uh, you know, if somebody has a big, big mall. I mean, this depends. I mean, some of the 
we'll see. I'll have no, for the most part, I would just, yeah, yeah just, you know, I, we, we call it common sense, but common sense isn't always common, so, <laughs> you, know, we wanna, you know, just making good decisions, uh, you know, if you're not sure of something on this front, always contact your school, all the schools have resources uh, to address different, you know, all these different issues, all the, you know, majority of the schools have been around for decades and decades, but, Mike, for uh, spending time with us to uh, get us all geared up for uh, for winter. I really appreciate this. It's an absolute pleasure anytime. Absolute pleasure. This coming Saturday, February 27th, is Anosmia Awareness Day. And anosmia is the lack of a sense of smell. I would very much like to have been able to do something about that because it's becoming increasingly more prevalent due to the uh, COVID-19 virus. So, um, but that will have to be another time because the podcast I have is 56 minutes long and I sure don't have time for it here. I do have time, though, to thank you very much for listening. I hope you uh, come back and uh, see us again next week. Until then, have a good one. Bye for now.